0: one of the greatest deficits of modern society is the inability to walk with others through pain and suffering so there's a couple of double negatives there one of the biggest deficits of modern society is we can't walk through pain and suffering our culture and sometimes our churches hinder us to sit with those in their suffering for long periods of time most of our lives are actually orientated to see suffering and then to drive around it we struggle to enter in and comfort those who are suffering. I remember being 24 years old, 2013, I was at Sydney Michigan Bible College and we did a college mission and I did it to a retirement village in Castle Hill. And my job for that week was to follow the hospital chaplain into every room where people were dying. 24 years old, no idea what I was doing and walking into a room where i don't know if you've been next to a hospital bed but the smell and the color of the skin and i had to sit with people that had hours or days left and to give them some kind of comfort helpless fumbling maybe you've been on the other end of suffering where you've been the one that has been in an acute season of suffering and someone's given you a platitude or given you a word, or it's just given you something that has actually exasperated the pain. I don't know if you felt this times when you feel inept to give comfort to those that are suffering, or times when you are personally going through pain and suffering and the words have exasperated the pain. We're gonna see this in Job this morning. This is the exact dynamic that is going on here with his friends. Job is going through ultimate suffering. He's lost everything. His health, his family, his riches, everything. And today we're going to see how his friends seek to comfort him. One really important theological framework that has helped me understand and read Job that I want us to start with is this idea of the retribution principle. Anyone heard of the retribution principle? This idea that evil, ought to be met with or cancelled out by a response that is of equal force evil is ought to be met with a response of equal force so essentially what you put in is what you get out it's this tit-for-tat it's karma of sorts and this tension is going on all the way through job and one of the most helpful frameworks I didn't come up with this another theologian came up with this is this triangle of tension that's going on in Job. There's this triangle of tension where there are three perceived truths that are happening. And Job's friends and us as the readers are trying to reconcile this tension. So this tension, this idea of of God's justice and Job's righteousness and the retribution principle. So Job's friends, as we're about to see, they keep defending this retribution principle. They're all saying, man, if if you're going through bad, you must have done bad. Simple as that. They're working through this idea. If you've done evil, that is why God is punishing you. And this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem. And God actually rebukes this understanding of the world. Job's then going to defend saying, hey, guys, I've been righteous. Actually, I haven't been, I haven't been doing evil or sinning. Uh, we know as the readers, Job 1 and 2, there's this repetition of Job that he was upright and righteous. If you guys were here last week or you've read it, it's a repetition. The reader, we're meant to understand that Job is righteous. And Job is going to defend this. And then Elihu that we meet near the end, he's going to say, well, God is just. And God is just. And if God, and this is his understanding, and we're going to look and unpack whether this theology is of God. If people do good, good things should happen. And if people do bad, bad things should happen. And if God is just, he will punish the wicked. So I just want us to sit in this tension. This tension actually is all over, permeates all through Job. This idea of the retribution principle. If you do evil, God should punish it with evil. and But hang on, Job's righteous? So that doesn't quite fit? And Elias is saying, no, God's just. And if he sees evil, it should be met with evil. And those that are good should be blessed. And this triangle is meant to give us tension. It is meant to give us this tightness. And I don't know if you guys have read Job or even as you wrestle with your own suffering. In a simplistic way, maybe people have given you platitudes, claiming it is from God, but that this idea that, oh, hang on, if you're going through bad things, that means you've done wickedness. And so I really want us to sit in this truth, sorry, sit in this tension, not truth. Let's edit that in the podcast. Let's sit in this, <laughs> let's sit in, in this tension. It's a triangle of tension, like, hang on, all these things maybe on their own are true, but how do they fit? How are they reconciled in the book of Job? Now, before we, we jump in to piling on the friends, before we pile on the friends, they actually do comfort Job well. All right, so before we critique the friends, as the Bible reading was, was shown, we're gonna see here, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar, the namathite heard about all the troubles what do they do they come they come to him they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him so let's not pile on these guys straight away they're actually they actually have a good heart and what we're going to see here is they actually do start off comforting Job in his suffering really well when they see him saw him from a distance they could hardly recognize him and we've got to see the gravity of this there the sores that are on Job's face. It's so almost evil, and they can't recognize their friend, and they begin to weep aloud. They begin to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and sprinkled dust on their heads, so they do these practices of grief and lament that are in their culture. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And when we read seven days and seven nights, the Bible is trying to communicate to us, seven represents wholeness, perfection. And they're saying this in that Job's friends sat with him in wholeness. They did a good job here. And catch this, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. i want to come back to this idea, but man, sometimes if you guys have been in the season of suffering, Sometimes someone sitting with you, weeping with you, getting down in the ashes with you, and sitting in silence is enough. It's enough. And us as the readers, as we read Job, Job's friends haven't sinned until this point. So if Job just ends here, everyone goes home. Job's friends have done wholeness. They've sat with him in silence, and they've wept with him, And they've come to him. Job's response is chapter 3. We're not going to go through it for the topic of today. But chapter 3 is arguably, maybe maybe alongside Psalm 88, the darkest chapter in the whole Bible. It is dark. There's just no hope. Job essentially is saying, man, I just wish I wasn't born. Why, Why wouldn't God just end my life in the womb? That's how much pain and hurt he is in. So it's in response to chapter 3 that the friends finally speak. As we read what the friends have given to try and comfort Job, we're actually meant to critique them. So if we fast forward to the end of Job, we see here after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, one of the friends, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant, Job has. So this is actually a really interesting section of scripture that as we read Job's friend's responses to Job we are meant to critique it. We as the readers will get at the end, at the epilogue, God is angry with Job's friends and what they've said. And so you've given, you've given Job bad theology, you haven't represented me well to Job. So we're meant to critique Job's friends here. So just before you you know, I'm about to pile on the three friends. We're actually meant to do this. It's actually a really interesting part of scripture. I don't know if you guys have read it. It's almost like, because it's not good theology. It's like, oh, I'm reading like some other faith truth book without the Holy Spirit here. It's really like these people are trying to come to terms with God and suffering. And it's actually meant to feel like, oh, this is tedious. I actually felt really unsettled in my spirit as I was reading it. And you can imagine. If we didn't have frameworks to read Job, someone just opened up to this book and be like, oh, this is what God is. This is like Psalms. We could actually get a really wrong picture of God. So let's jump into that. We're going to meet the first friend, Eliphaz. And Eliphaz poses a loaded question to Job as a response to his suffering. Who being innocent has ever perished? And where were the upright ever destroyed? Who being innocent has ever perished. So again, they're going back to this retribution principle. Who being innocent, who being good, has ever perished? And who being good has ever received death? So they're trying to reconcile this, like this isn't fitting, Job. Where were the upright ever destroyed? At the core of this question is this statement saying, man, none of us are totally innocent. And Eliphaz notes that God is disciplining And he's disciplining and job 4 goes on and says he disciplines even angels and so with this in mind elf has interprets job's musings as whining and when he says this he's saying how massive job's punishment is and he gets his little chart you know you've got the horizontal and the vertical the x and y he gets his little sin to punishment chart and all he can conclude is that job's done something awful like who being innocent has ever perished. And so he winds up, Eliphaz says, and he's just piling on to Job here. Eliphaz says to him, is it for your piety, your holiness, your goodness, that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? Can you imagine being in suffering and having a friend say this to you? Piling this onto you. Is it your piety that he rebukes you, that brings his charge against you. He's essentially saying it's your wickedness that has caused this. It's not your sin, endless. Eliphaz gets to this simplistic conclusion. Job's extraordinary suffering, I can only explain it, as a punishment of God for your grievous sin. That's where he's getting at. All I can get at is, man, you have done something wrong. And Job's defended himself all along by saying, we're going to see this later, contrary to his three friends' opinions, that there is good evidence all over the world that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And maybe we see that in our life and we can't reconcile that, that the wicked often prosper and the righteous often suffer. And we see this, Job is, Job is defending this idea the retribution principle. I know full well what you're thinking, the schemes by which you would wrong me. So this is Job responding to Eliphaz. Where now is the house of the great, the tents where the wicked live? Have you never questioned those who travel? Have you paid no regard to their accounts? Catch this, that the wicked are spared from the day of calamity. So saying even even bad people, even people that are evil and have sinned, are they spared from the day of calamity? Are they spared from their suffering? That they are delivered from the day of wrath? Evil people. Are spared in the times of calamity and are allowed to escape their disaster. He's posing this as a question, saying, as I look around the world, I don't think evil people are spared from their calamity, and evil people aren't delivered from the day of wrath. So Job, he's, remember, go back to that that tension, retribution principle, and Job's defending, saying, no, 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 as I look around, evil people are not spared in times of calamity and from the day of wrath so Eliphaz piles it onto Job essentially saying bad things happening to you and if God's character is simplistically he sees evil and he punishes evil then you have done wrong we're going to come to Bildad Bildad feels the same way as Eliphaz but he has another idea on top of it he's saying maybe it's something to do with Job's ancestors or maybe really, really darkly, it's actually to do with the sin of his kids. So we've got to remember Job's kids have died. And Bildad, again, is just piling onto Job here. Job 8, 3 and 4. Does God pervert justice? So again, retribution principle. Is he, does God actually contradict himself? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their death. This is dark, dark, dark. This is why God gets angry and wants to rebuke them. Can you imagine? We've got to sit in this. Your kids have just died. No parent should ever, ever bury their children. And a friend comes to you saying, it's because your children have sinned against God. And he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. This is dark, this is dark. No wonder Job responds in Job 16 with you are miserable comforters. So Job, this is what Job says to his friends. You are miserable comforters. Bildad continues and he, again, he's trying to suspend the limits of human wisdom. He's trying to come up with this idea of reconciling and maybe it's about your ancestors. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For where we were born only yesterday and know nothing, And our days on earth are but for a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? And catch this logic. Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? So Bildad, he's actually got really good logic. You know, one plus one equals two. This logic 101 is saying, can papyrus grow tall where there's no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? Like Can plants grow without water? And of course they need water. He's saying essentially where there's smoke, there's fire. So Bildad's again trying to simplistically reconcile this suffering. And he's trying to say us, say to us, who's gonna argue with this by logical deduction, you did something wrong. That's why these things are happening. That's me so far. Zophar. Zophar's not much better far follows the same line as his two friends. God is just. Job must have done something to offend him. And if God's power is absolute, then God's law is that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. And so then Job's predicament is his own fault. That's going to be Zophar's main line of arguing that your predicament, you caused this. Something you've done has caused this. And again, he's actually trying, Zophar's going to use this logic with how God punishes evil. He'll spit out the riches he swallowed. This is Zophar speaking of God. He spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach them, vomit them up. He will suck the poison of serp- serpents and the fangs of an adder will kill him. It's like this image of he'll suck the poison of, servants, of serpents. This is, this is, this is what as essentially Zophar is saying. If you're wicked, you are in for it. If you are wicked, God is going to chase you down and you are in for it. This language is swallowed up and sucking the poison of serpents. So if I continue on, surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief and the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. The triumph, let's say it another way the triumph of the wicked has been short-lived, and the joy of the godless has been only You guys catching the logic here saying, so again, good things should happen to good people. And so the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. This is not fitting with our framework. The three friends are trying to give Job something. They're trying to give him some good theology. They're trying to comfort him and job is miserable the collective message to job that he's getting is that job you're claiming to be good and you're holding on to your righteousness and that god is righteous but job you can't be good because good things only happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people therefore you must be a bad person what could be more insulting been hearing that. I remember hearing a preacher say, oh, I don't know where the idea of like insult to injury came from, but uh, surely Job, you know, one of the oldest ancient books, is, is this is insult to injury. These three friends piling on to Job. Miserable comforters. Miserable comforters. And as we open up God's word, as we let this be a mirror to us, And we we can do so much damage. We can do so much damage with our words if we are not careful in times of suffering. And I want to give a caveat before we we shift into application. I really want to say words are important. Words are very important. Amen? Words are important. Truth is important. And some of the things that his friends are saying do have echoes of truth, have echoes of good theology. Truth... Should never come in the place of timing. There's a timing here, and often we learn these we learn these truths about God, often in the rearview mirror, then through the windshield. We say then again. Imagine going through the suffering, and one of the first things that your friends do is they just pile onto you. Man, your kids died because they were wicked. Job, what have you done wrong that all this evil is coming upon you? And they're piling on to Job. And again, I want to say before we jump to application. We don't want to say lies to people that are suffering. So words are important, but we're gonna get here. So if, if words are important, the timing and tone is very important, but also we don't want to give people words, sorry, lies and platitudes when they're suffering. What is Job trying to give us about comforting others? Two critically important theological ideas that we're learning from Job's friends. Two things, firstly, as your pastor, you must hear this. Satan is waging war against God's servants. Satan is waging war against God's servants. To Job's friends, all evil comes from humans behaving badly. So Job's friends, they, they don't see, they haven't read chapter one and two. They don't know what's going on in the heavenly courts, that there's this cosmic spiritual battle. And in their minds, all they can think of is, All evil comes from humans behaving badly. And so that's why they're so quick to accuse Job of sin. That's why they're so quick to say, where's the evil? We must find this human cause that we can comprehend. And yet the narrator in chapter 1 and 2 is clear. Job's suffering is part of an unseen cosmic battle. And there is an accuser, the Satan, who is waging war against God's servants. And Job never finds out about that in his story. He never finds out. About what's happening in Job one and two, and we too can forget that there is an enemy at work, and I think there is there can be an over, a danger of overreading our circumstance and blaming everything on the devil. But I actually think those of us who live in a naturalistic secular worldview, we can often fall, often fall down the other slope and say no this is, isn't because of Satan. And Ephesians six, the New Testament actually reiterates this. We are wrest- there is a wrestle is more than flesh and blood. The wrestle, our battle isn't just against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual powers in the heavenly realm. To be a Christian is to believe evil is not just a human construct, but has a spiritual dimension. And number two, one thing that Job's friends teach us about God is that there is no, sorry, not God about the world, that there is no innocent suffering. So I'll say that again, that there is no innocent suffering. This, This idea that we must unlearn from Job's friends is that there is no such thing as innocent suffering. In a neat and tidy world of Job's friends, only the wicked perish and the good prosper. His friends cannot stand that Job is maintaining his righteousness, because if the righteous suffer, the whole world framework just falls apart like a house of cards. And is not the very center of our faith, of our worldview, an innocent man's suffering? Isn't that the very center of our faith? The whole foundation is an innocent man's suffering. So we must unlearn these, these ideas that Job's friends are saying that, number one, Satan is waging war against God's servants and this simplistic idea that there is just no innocent suffering because there is. And so we come to kind of the the, the back half of this sermon. this is gonna be more pastoral, but my question for us as a church is how do we become generous comforters? As we look at Job, how do we become generous comforters? How do we walk into a room How do we walk into a hospital room where people are on their last breath and we give them genuine comfort? How can we be people that walk with people in suffering and sit with it and be comfortable with it? And we must be shaped into kind of people who can suffer well and suffer well with others. As one of the main visions of us as a church. This is one of the main distinctives of how we can be a people of light, how we can bring the kingdom to earth is actually giving people something more substantial in their suffering. And so two tools I see from Job to become generous sufferers. The first one is we need to embrace the limits of human wisdom. Welcome to church. <laughs> you are finite. You do not see all. We need to embrace the limits of human wisdom. I dare you, honestly, this week, try and sit there and just read the whole conversation from chapter four. You read the whole conversation with Job and his friends. And you know what I think the main function of this section is? It's meant to be tedious. It's meant to tire us out. Because the point that it's trying to get to is that human wisdom has severe limits. Human wisdom has severe limits. Because it's meant to get us to this point of being humbled. Maybe, I know some of your stories, but I don't know all of them. And if you've been in a season of acute suffering, do you know one of the main things that happen in your suffering is it just melts away pride and self-sufficiency. It just melts away pride. melts away self-sufficiency you think you had some semblance of control over your life and you think you can try and justify and explain and philosophy 101 we reach the limits of human wisdom and we are told by our culture that we are the final arbiters of the universe um, but we are not and this pride in human wisdom is melted away in the furnace of affliction so if we're going to be people who bring genuine compassion and comfort to those that are in pain, we ourselves must be humbled by our own inability to understand the deep mystery of suffering. The error that Job's three friends go into is that they try and explain and they try and lecture and give him a false understanding of the world and God. And secondly, how do we become generous comforters? This is my big point for today. We need to embrace the ministry of presence need to embrace the ministry of presence. What Job's friends did so well at the very end of chapter 2, and it tells us with the perfection of seven days and seven nights, is that they sat with him in silence. They just sat with him. They came to him and they gave their physical presence. They sat with him in the ashes. They wept with him. You ever had someone just weep with you when they share what they're going through? They wept with him, and they hadn't sinned until this point. When someone is present to you in your anguish, their presence is enough. Often, I find this as well, I often speak when someone's dropped a bomb on me to actually alleviate my own anxiety. I just need to fill the space. You know, I tell an anecdote, and you know, try and make them laugh or something. I'm like, I'm just, I'm so uncomfortable in this moment. I need to speak. And if we would learn to sit in the incredible, uncomfortable, but the incredible power of silence and to embrace the ministry of just presence. And so often what's attended in the moment of silence and presence is mourning and connection and healing. 2013, July, 2013, my mom gets diagnosed with breast cancer. She had three rounds of breast cancer in six years, and I think it was the first time I really came face to face with kind of more acute suffering in our home. And I remember the second half of 2013, Mum went through um, pretty rigorous treatment. I was living in Croydon, and my dad and my sister were working full time. I would drive from Croydon. None of you know where Croydon is, on the other edges. It's in the inner west. I would yes, amen. I'd drive from Croydon. I'd drive from Croydon to Monavale my family home was, I'd pick her up, and then I'd drive her to Royal North Shore. And that car trip, that car trip, I'd pick her up, and she was clearly already crying, a lot of fear in her eyes. And I was driving an auto, so I didn't need my left hand that whole trip. I will just hold her hand, and we'd just sit in silence. A 40-minute drive from Onavale to Royal North Shore would just sit in silence, and at the end, before she got out of the car, I will just pray for her very quickly. And then she'd go up to her treatment and I'd just wait there. And that was enough. That was enough for my mom that I'd just sit there with her, I'd hold her hand, she gripped on so tightly, and then I would just pray for her. There's power in the presence. Our presence is often enough. And we realize in that moment that it's actually our wounds. It's our wounds and not our words that heal others. It's our wounds as we have wrestled with our own wounds and are able to sit in suffering. And it's not our words that heal others. And I think ultimately, man, we see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus could have just dropped the Bible from the sky. He could have, the golden tablets. You know what I mean? He could have just gone, boom. Here you go, here's how to follow me. He just drops the Bible. What does he do instead? He comes in person. God puts on flesh the Incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, and he steps in to the suffering. He steps into this broken world, and he takes on flesh, and he wants to be with us. And ultimately, he wants to heal and transform, and ultimately, he wants to put evil and suffering to death. Becoming a person of compassion and comfort, we have to be comfortable with our own wounds, to not cover it with words. And those of you guys that have been comforted well, you know, sometimes words and platitudes, they're just band-aids to bullet wounds. But for us to embrace the ministry of presence, to be there, to be there. And part of being a person of presence, I think, is letting Jesus and the gospel heal our own wounds so that we're not uncomfortable in those moments of suffering. Now, I don't know if you guys have spent your entire life stuffing your pain and emotions by whatever the culture gives you. Um, I have this very predictable pattern of times when I'm going through pain and I'm I'm struggling. I have kind of two categories of friends in my head. I have a category, particularly one guy, he's my distract fun friend. And when when I'm in my most, you guys all have one, in my most immature times, he's my first text. You know, things are good at home, you know, and if you come face to face with cancer, I'm like, hey, man, like let's let's just go, go out. We'll have a beer and let's just don't talk to me about anything heavy. Let's just talk about sport and predictable but also immature. And then when I'm ready, I know that God ultimately needs me to come face to face with him and let his words and let the gospel heal me and then let myself open up to my mature real friends to actually speak comfort and presence into me. <laughs> Pastor of Anchor Southwest, Arnaldo Santiago, says this. You, you us, pain is still your enemy that you hide from rather than the conquered foe that is now a servant of your redemption. So we actually need to change our perspective. How do we become people of presence? Being able to sit in the suffering of others. We all need to treat pain not as your enemy to hide from, but it's a conquered foe. It's a conquered foe that if we go into it, becomes a servant of your redemption. And the only way for us to be healed of our pain isn't to run or distract from it, it's actually to go through it. And to bring that pain to Jesus and to let Jesus and his finished work and his words and to let community heal that pain. This is the way. This is the way in canon beaches, there's no shortcuts our pain and suffering the way of jesus to be an apprentice of jesus is to let jesus's wounds heal us is to let jesus's wounds heal us and it's jesus's wounds that as we are healed we become this person of presence and as we've experienced healing through the gospel through our brokenness through pain that we've processed we are able to be a presence a person of love to them and it's only when we have received God's comfort that we're able now to give it. And I think it's actually our inability to listen and our inability to provide compassion to those that are hurting, because we ourselves have not received the comfort from God. We haven't had the courage to go face to face with our pain and bring it to God. I love seeing some of these truths, making sure they align with the New Testament. Paul writing to the church in Corinthians, the second letter, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? Compassion. That's who God's character is. He's the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So we see God's character there who comforts us in our troubles so that if we want to become people of comfort, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort bounds through Christ. I want you to catch us here. So that we can comfort those in any trouble, how do we do that? With the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You cannot give what you do not possess. You cannot give what you do not possess, but for those of us that have, we've tasted it, we've received it, God's comfort, we can give that to others. Your pain, your suffering, your grief, your loss. These things are the very agents when brought to Jesus and reformed and transformed allow us to be a person of presence and comfort. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm just going to shift into a time of ministry. I started with the idea that culture and sometimes our churches walk around pain. We avoid it. I came across this really fascinating um, history on the tradition of grief and worship in the temple. Catch this, when Herod built the temple, it contained, it contained only one entrance, which was located at the, at the base of the southern wall, which is cool, I've actually stood there. Further east, so around the corner on the same wall was the exit. So picture, one way in, one way out. Southern entrance, eastern exit. And the people would enter through the opening, that allowed them to go through the wall and ascend to the stairs to the temple and then exit by the other passage. Huge crowds flowed in and out in steady streams. There was one, exe- one exception to this pattern. One group of worshippers that were allowed to go the opposite way, entering the way of the exit and leaving through the entrance. And these were the people that were grieving. As they bumped into and squeezed by each other, the two groups came face to face the sad faces of those who are experiencing sorrow could be seen by those going the opposite direction. And in those brief moments, the grief could be shared. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to this disruptive pattern, to not run from pain, to not run from suffering, to avoid it, but to come face to face with it. And I think it's too easy to enter church and leave out the exit without encountering other people's pain and often our own. Jesus built his ministry on entering the pain that others avoided. Jesus built his ministry overturning the traditions, false ideas about divine punishment and suffering, removing blame from the person and offering compassion. Jesus' whole life was structured to encounter pain and suffering not avoided. And the church, and can all the beaches, the church at its best, us at its best, gives people a tangible encounter of what it is to be loved and comforted by Jesus. That's all we've got. This is one of our best tools, that we are a people that can encounter and sit with and heal and minister to and be people of presence to other people's suffering. And we need to create patterns like the temple did to run into the pain when others are running out. And we need a supernatural a saviour, a supernatural power to face this suffering and to sit with those who grieve and are in her pain. Before we end with song, just want to create some space. Just some space for us to, to pray and minister to one another. Those of you that are part of the prayer team, you guys can either kind of stand up to the sides or even where you are. Um, I'm not gonna ask you to stand up. Sometimes I end by asking those who need specific ministry to stand and receive it. But I just think this topic has a different posture. And I just want us to give us a moment to, to minister to one another, um, to pray with one another, to sit with one another in, in our pain, in our suffering. And so if you're so-called, you're welcome to sit there and just reflect. But if you wanted to move around the room and you know, maybe you know someone's stories or you can just see it in their eyes, you want to just sit with them and just offer them a prayer. and You want to offer them your presence. You're welcome to sit with them. And I just want us to create some space. I don't want us to run out the exit doors and run away from our pain and the pain and suffering of others, but to actually be a ministry of presence. So if you're so comfortable, you're welcome just to pray with the person next to you or to move around the room. And I'll pop up after a few minutes and gonna pray for us and transition to worship. So why don't I pray for us now as we shift into a time of prayer and ministry. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you didn't Stand at a distance, cold and unaware of our state, but that you entered in. And Holy Spirit, right now I pray that you would come and come and minister to us. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see those that are hurting, to have the courage to sit with those that are hurting. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would you would heal. Jesus, it's your wounds that heal us. So help us to see and minister to one another right now. Help us to give comfort to those that are hurting because you have given us comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.